Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? The evidence was circumstantial, and the prosecution brought Wayne Williams to trial for two of the 28 killings. Apartments on Buford Highway, where we now have new developments in the ongoing investigation of the Centennial Park bombing. General Robert Abrams, for the first time, and officially calls the Tawana Brawley story a lie. At a press conference this morning, Seattle Police Chief Robert Hansen announced a special task force being formed to study Ted Bundy. Join us now as we go beyond criminal headlines. And I'm your host for Beyond Criminal Headlines, Nicole Bennett. Four decades of murder. Born in Reynolds, Georgia in 1940, Samuel Little is considered the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. Following his arrest in 2012 for the murders of three women in Los Angeles, they were Carol Alford, Guadalupe Apodaca, and Audrey Nelson, Samuel Little confessed to killing 93 women between 1970 and 2005. The former competitive boxer usually knocked out and then strangled his victims. More than 60 of his confessions have been definitively matched to victims through DNA evidence and or extensively corroborated interviews. And although he avoided a murder conviction until 2014, Samuel Little had numerous run-ins with law enforcement across the country all throughout his life. This week, as you can tell, I'm jumping right into our discussion because I was so excited and humbled to have the opportunity to speak with New York Times bestselling author and journalist Jillian Lauren. Following his murder conviction in 2014, Jillian confronted Samuel Little and fought to identify many of his unknown victims before his death just six years later in December 2020. As a true crime expert, Jillian continues to help victims' families search for clues to bring their cases to a final close. Her fourth book, Behold the Monster, Confronting America's Most Prolific Serial Killer, is scheduled to be released this July. You can pre-order it now. And her story is also featured in a stars documentary called Confronting a Serial Killer. We started our discussion this week, though, by talking about Jillian's life story because it surprises most people. Her first memoir, Some Girls, My Life in a Harem, published in 2010, details Jillian's time spent as the mistress of the Prince of Brunei, who was the youngest brother of the richest man in the world at the time. Her second memoir, Everything You Ever Wanted is about Jillian adopting her first son from Ethiopia and the work that she's done in Africa later in life. She also wrote a novel called Pretty, which addresses recovery from drug addiction and, in Jillian's words, our culture's obsession with outsides, 
She's written countless articles over the years. She was once a parenting blogger for today. And if that's all not enough, Jillian also told me she considers herself a professional rock wife. In 2005, she married Scott Schreiner, the bass player for the iconic rock band Weezer. So, of course, setting all that aside, this week we'll be exploring her journey with the Samuel Little investigation. It all began with a call to Los Angeles Police Department homicide detective Mitzi Roberts, the officer who put Samuel Little behind bars in 2012. Following months of exchanging letters with Samuel Little, Jillian finally got a face-to-face meeting. In the hundreds of hours of interviews that followed, Samuel Little confessed to dozens of murders for the first time. And I wanted to go ahead and issue a trigger warning. It might go without saying, obviously, in true crime, we touch on a lot of heavy subject matter. But this episode in particular will deal with sexual assault, strangulation and other graphic details that do come up in our discussion about Samuel Little's crimes. Before Jillian and I unpacked how she got involved with the investigation, though, and her incredible efforts to identify his victims... I wanted to begin with a little info on his background. What was Samuel Little's early life like? When did he commit his first crime? And were there crimes that he committed early on? Any red flags that foreshadowed what was to come? Here's what Jillian had to say. His life, I I mean, I just like to think of it as a bouquet of red flags, uh, you know, wrapped in caution tape. I mean, he was incarcerated from the time he was 13 years old, essentially until he was about 25, uh, on and off. Um, the the incarceration that he suffered during that time, the institutionalization, the abuse certainly contributed. Um, but he cut a, let's see. 60-year swath of crime across the country, 40 of it involved murder. And he sort of posed as, it wasn't even um, like a red flag. He, He posed as, he said he was a thief by day and a murderer by night. He was getting arrested almost every other day in a different town, in a different state, in a different jurisdiction with no interjurisdictional communication. And he was getting arrested for something like stealing a steak at a Walmart. And then they'd let him go and he'd go murder somebody that night. So he said, you know, I was, I was working under the radar. They thought I was, they had me pegged as a petty thief you know, and brush, brush it off and brush it off. And I mean, he, you know, his family will say it was wrong from the day he was born. He was, you know, he was molested at a young age. Um, and then he was put in a violent, um, juvenile institution, when he was 13 for stealing a bicycle and spent 18 months in there, came out, was, was soon in the Ohio state reformatory back again. And so like, 
he had every single, I mean, not just red flags. I mean, is it a, he is the longest rap sheet any cop I've spoken to has ever seen. And the DA who has prosecuted almost every recent serial killer in Los Angeles history had never seen a rap sheet like Sam's. I mean, red flags. There were arrests for assaults and murder within those for which he was acquitted um, or there was a grand jury failure to indict for lack of evidence where two black prostitutes were not even permitted to testify. Um, so, I mean, he was he was nothing but a red flag. I told Jillian if we had a book on how to predict whether someone's going to be a serial killer, Samuel Little's background, so full of red flags, would probably fill a lot of those pages. And Jillian went on to highlight more about Samuel Little's early life, including his obsession with violent pornography. Um, you know, he was, he was obsessed with True Detective magazines, which was the violent pornography of those days. Um, you know, he would go and steal them from the dime store. Um, you know, grew up in a working class black family, uh, was born in Georgia, moved with the great northern migration up into uh, a steel town in Lorain, Ohio, um, was raised by his paternal grandparents, uh, didn't know they were his paternal grandparents, thought it was his mother and father until much later in life. So yes, it has absolutely every earmark of, you know, if you opened a recipe book on how to make a serial killer. And yet if you ask Sam, you know, I asked him several times, like, what if any one of these things was taken away? You know, would you still be the person you are? And he had sort of two answers to that. And one was the bullshit answer. And one, I think, was the true answer. And one was, if I'd only met a woman like you, you know, it really just was those stuck up bitches. And how I just, you know, the way they turned their noses up at me. And then and then I saw strangling in a magazine. And then I saw strangling in a Humphrey Bogart movie. And then I realized that, like, finally what I was made for. But if I had only met a woman like you. And, and then there was this God made me how I am. It's not my fault. I'm the victim. In fact, God made you how you are. God made the paint on the wall. God made this world perfect. That's Jesus. That's the Bible. If I ask to be forgiven, I'm forgiven. And God made me because I, I'm perfect how I am. So those were his two answers. If I, if I had just met the right woman, I wouldn't have had to strangle you know, I mean, now proven 61, but confess 93. Um, and also, I couldn't help it. God made me this way. So contradictory answers. Very contradictory answers. So Samuel Little lived 
all over the U.S. And by 1975, he'd been arrested more than 25 times in 11 states for crimes including theft, assault, and attempted rape. Two of his earlier crimes that I wanted to ask Jillian about both took place in 1982. The murders of 22-year-old Melinda LaPree, whose remains were discovered in Mississippi, and 26-year-old Patricia Ann Mount, whose remains were discovered in Florida. Here's Jillian unpacking how detectives discovered similarities between both those cases, as well as other crimes that had taken place in Mississippi at the time, and ultimately how witness reports led police right to Samuel Little. Patricia Ann Mount was murdered after being picked up in a bar in Alachua County. Um, there were eyewitnesses. Um, she was picked up in a brown Pinto station wagon, this real piece of crap Pinto station wagon that, uh, got was the one that got pinned in a lot of these crimes and um you know so the so people saw her leave the bar um people saw her enter the car with um a man in a cast and uh and then you know they found her body in a field later um through the eyewitness identification the alachua police department put on a be on the lookout for somebody through the eyewitness identifications, they had a drawing. Be on the lookout for, and they had Sam and the car and also his traveling companions at the time, right? So some cops pulled him over for a warrant or traffic violation in Pascagoula and were able to connect the two crimes that this guy looks a lot like the person who was identified last with Melinda LaPree, right? And they did, in fact, indict him. They, they indicted him by a grand jury for the murder of Melinda LaPree. And there were two surviving victims in Pascagoula. Part of the reason they were able to connect these was because both of these victims had given their testimony at the time of being assaulted, but they were no, they were ignored because they were black prostitutes, and that was Layla McLean and Hilda Nelson. They showed up. They walked miles. Hilda was nine months pregnant. They walked miles to show up. Uh, and when Hilda walked into the courtroom, she urinated. She saw him and she urinated on the floor. And they made her clean it up and made them walk home. And the victims, the living victims of Salt, who had identified him from an eight-pack, both of them, um, were not permitted to testify, and he was acquitted. And then, and then they moved him to Alachua County, where he was actually tried for the murder of Patricia Mount. And he was, and he was acquitted for lack of physical evidence. Now, this was before DNA fingerprinting. All they had was hairs. 
And and the argument just became, well, hairs can blow all the way. You know, what is a hair really? And hair can't really be if you can't identify DNA. You can just say this hair looks a lot like his hair. You can't say it is his hair. So, you know, and that went on and on and on. And, you know, there were two surviving um, victims in San Diego um, for which he was tried for assault, kidnapping, attempted murder, and he served 18 months, got out, and went and killed two women that night. Oh, my gosh. Not that night, the next night, as long as it took him to get from San Diego to Los Angeles. It's almost unbelievable. It was a system, and and I'm quoting Jillian, that failed the victims so egregiously. And at the same time, Jillian added that it's imperative to point out it's a system that's now looking to change. In many ways, we're seeing significant changes in the way we look at cold cases, especially considering the technology available to crime scene analysts today. Most importantly... Jillian underscored what she feels could be essential for investigators going forward, a mandated reporting system for the behavioral patterns of serial killers, serial offenders. She specifically referenced the FBI's VICAP system. That's Violent Crime Apprehension Program. It facilitates communication and coordination between law enforcement agencies that investigate, track, and apprehend violent serial offenders. Jillian pointed out, though, that the program isn't mandatory. Here's more from her on that. So you don't have to report a murder in your jurisdiction that is, you know, unsolved, that has these particular earmarks or these particular MOs, right, or this particular MO, which you then might be able to connect to an MO across the country if everyone was inputting this. So that was a lot. No, I appreciate, I mean, but that's, that's like you said, this pattern of, um, that he was indicted and then acquitted. He was let out. He was, he was murdering women. Um, but also getting, you know, away with things like attempted murder and attempted assault and attempted rape. And, um, and you mentioned, talking, you know, jurisdictions communicating because his crimes were countrywide. I mean, he was, like you said, born in Georgia and then he moves and then ends up in California. And I'm jumping in here because as Jillian and I discussed Samuel Little's transient lifestyle, she dropped what I thought was a pretty shocking detail. I'd read about this briefly, but it jogged my memory. For about 15 years during his crime spree across the U.S., Samuel Little traveled with his girlfriend, Jean Dorsey. Jean, who has since passed away, was 30 years older than Samuel Little. Jillian describes her as a master shoplifter. The pair would shoplift by day and then Samuel would murder women by night. She said that he insisted Gene had no idea what he was up to. Here's Jillian with more on the dynamic between Samuel Little and his longtime partner, Gene Dorsey. She did, and, and most of the cops still think that she didn't really know. And, um, 
you know, she was a booster. She was a shoplifter. And every once in a while, there would be earrings in the car or a shoe in the car or, you know, feces and blood in the car. I mean, there's not that much blood with strangulation. But, you know, I mean, he said the car always smelled like bleach. He remembered that because her eyes would sting because she'd, she'd wash the car out in the morning. You know, what we know and don't know about each other, I, I can't say, and I've never interviewed Jean. But, you know, it's like if, if there were two earrings left in the car, she'd keep them and sell them. And if there was one, she'd toss them. Ah, wow. That's so interesting. And we're talking decades of crimes. And then we fast forward to 2012. Um, when or what crimes ultimately you and I talked about the major crimes that wound up, um, helping them really nail Samuel Little. Um, but what led to his arrest in 2012? So many questions. How did it happen? Did he cooperate? I mean, did he go peacefully when he was found? Oh, hell no. I mean, yeah, because he was... Um, I think 72 when he found him. Um, and he was on the run. They chased him all across the country. He, he was somewhere different every day. You know, every, they were two days behind him. And, and the thing is how they, how they found out about him in the first place is really fascinating is that in 2009, the Department of Justice, um, you know, I, I don't think people realize how recent DNA fingerprinting is. You know, the discovery of the DNA helix happened in the 50s. The discovery of the DNA fingerprinting that we're used to from NCIS and all that, uh, like, didn't happen until the early 80s, didn't come into the law enforcement system until the early to mid-90s. And even that was piloted in only 14 cities. So the Department of Justice was giving grants for police departments. And the LAPD Robbery Homicide Division got one of these grants to re-examine evidence from cold cases given the new technology. So there is a cold, there was a there was and is now again. Um, a cold case homicide unit, and they began looking for the mo the cases that they had the most uh, promising evidence to screen for DNA, and they started screening, and then they got a hit, and then they got another. They got Guadalupe Apodaca, and they got um, Audrey Nelson. Jillian said Guadalupe Apodaca and Audrey Nelson were two women who were in a tide of sex workers, murdered and left in dumpsters and alleyways. This was during the 1980s within the chaotic environment of South Los Angeles or South Central. Guadalupe Apodaca was found murdered at 46 years old in Los Angeles in September 1989. That same year, Audrey Nelson was found murdered in L.A. She was 35. Samuel Little's victims were typically women of color, marginalized women from impoverished communities. Jillian said, and I'm quoting her, they were easy for the Sams of the world to pick off. That was exactly his strategy. 
His victims were easy for the police to dismiss because for many of them, there wasn't family. And what's more, Jillian points out, there was certainly nothing even remotely close to victim advocacy at the time. Jillian told me her research has shown that in 1980s South LA, police would often refer to a case involving a marginalized victim as an NHI, meaning no humans involved. She then cited one of Sam's murders in which authorities originally concluded the victim had overdosed. Like I would argue, there was one murder that was attributed to an overdose. It has since been solved, but one of Sam's murders, you know, she was found naked upside down in a pile of tires. And I just thought, well, that's that's a pretty big stretch. You know, like, I'm not sure I would go overdose upside down naked in a pile of tires. That that wouldn't be my first choice. Um, So it's like the paperwork wasn't worth it. Um, And Sam counted on that. And then he lost. Finally. I mean, finally. And they had to and they had to wait for that third hit. That third hit was Carol Alford. Carol was 41 when she was murdered in Los Angeles. She was found in November 1987. Jillian said it was that third hit that prompted L.A. County Prosecutor Deputy District Attorney Beth Silverman to indict Samuel Little for the murders of Alford, Apodaca, and Nelson. All that was left, Jillian said, was tracking Samuel Little down. And it's actually a really exciting Story Mitzi Roberts, Detective Mitzi Roberts, who is, um, if anyone is a, a Michael Conley fan, who is Renee Ballard in the Michael Conley series. Uh, that, that that's based on Mitzi, um, and she is the detective who uh, who put Sam away. She was lead investigating officer on that case, and. Um, She dogged him down across the country until finally, like, they found him through his Walmart card where he picked up his Social Security um, in Louisville. He had a Walmart card that would automatically, his Social Security would go to it. And he used it twice in a row. And so they were able to track him down to a homeless shelter that was right near that Walmart and the marshals found him and guided him to Texas initially because they had a warrant there. And then he was, uh, oh, extradited him, I'm sorry, to Texas initially. And then he was extradited to Los Angeles where he was eventually tried. And in September of 2014, Samuel Little was convicted of first degree murder by a Los Angeles County jury. Jillian said she's personally read through about 5,000 pages of that trial transcript, and every page is both riveting and heartbreaking. It was an incredible, it was an incredible trial, and I am in touch, and I have a beautiful picture of the sentencing of, of, of the family members who were there, and of Beth Silverman, who was the district attorney, and, uh, and Mitzi, um, on the day of sentencing. And, you know, I, I, I think it was just an incredible day for all of them. Um, now, it is Detective Mitzi Robert Three's job to get this guy off the street. Now, 
I was interviewing her about a different case, but she started talking to me about Samuel Little and said, you know, I believe he committed many more murders across the country. And, you know, I just couldn't mobilize enough momentum around it, um, you know, to get people interested, to get people looking. But, you know, I suspect him of many, many more. And there are cops who um, are working on this and interested. And uh, I said, well, maybe as a journalist that that's what I can do. That's my job. I can put the heat on it. Like my job isn't to solve murders or to put murders away. Okay. All that changed. <laughs> I still don't have arresting capabilities, but I did solve murders along the way. But, uh, it, you know, I said, I could put heat on this story. I, maybe I could get people interested. Maybe I could get web sleuth community, you know, and, and put a little heat on local cops and, Get them working on these cold cases. Get them paying attention to these victims who are just so silenced. And I'm so loud. <laughs> I insist on it. Um, for better or for worse. But truly, I do have a voice. And I thought, well, I could use it. Um, I, I had no idea what I'd be getting into. I didn't know I was going to elicit a series of confessions. I didn't know I was going to get into the murder investigations. I just thought I'm a good interviewer and I can get this guy talking. Right. Just reach out. Like you said, if anything, just generate some awareness. I'm sure like any journalist would. So what happened? This is just I cannot imagine. This is so incredible to me. How did you first connect with him? And and how did the relationship develop? So many questions. What was he like? What was it like to talk, not only talk to him, but like you said, elicit these confessions from him? It's just astounding to me. It was it was a long process. First of all, it wasn't I went in and I had two interviews and I just wrap this wrap this thing up. I mean, I was in a super complicated web of being, you know, having information I shouldn't have about open investigations because I'm actually talking to the criminal and so the FBI and the Department of Justice and the local jurisdictions are so every one of them had a different relationship with me whether it was going to be contrary or it was going to be you know like sharing information um and what it was like was the most intense <laughs> well maybe not I don't know a very intense exercise in survival. I felt like just survival as a journalist, survival, not survival. I thought he was going to jump across the table and strangle me because he very well could have tried. And there's a possibility with the amount of, like we sort of calculated it, you know, by how long it would take for a guard to get to me while I was sitting with him. And, you know, there's a possibility you could break a hyoid bone just like that. But really, was I that scared he was going to kill me? That was the least of my fears by the end of this story. Like, you know, will I, 
Will I emerge with my sanity? Will I emerge with my family? Will I emerge with a sense of meaning and be able to go on? You know, having been with him, which was both, um, everyone's like, oh, it's so surprising that he is so charming. No, it's not. Of course he's charming and smart. And I mean, he was old, old man by the time I met him. But every once in a while, you could see it. Like you could see how he charmed women, you, you know. Samuel Little was an artist. Jillian said he would draw portraits of celebrities like Rihanna, Condoleezza Rice, Tupac. But of course, more importantly, he also drew his victims from memory. She said he was a great conversationalist, but everything was a transaction. And we'll touch on that more later. Jillian said that in all the time she spent with Samuel Little, she came to find, in her words, his crimes were all a part of who he was, but not the entirety of who he was. I think people get very confused by the Bundys and the Sam Littles and the people in the world who, whose identities are so fractured and compartmentalized, or the BGKs who can go and and hang a little girl and then go and be a little late for dinner and kiss his own daughter the same age, you know? And it, the compartmentalization is hard for m- more neurotypical people to understand. So what it was like to be around him was kind of everything. It was everything. Sometimes it was scary. Sometimes he was my only friend because I didn't have time to talk to anyone else. I was working on this thing 18 hours a day. You know, I talked to Sam Little every day. I mean, and sometimes I could have killed him myself. I, I really could have. And and the anger and the... um the trauma that comes up around it and, uh, um, you know, like right now I sleep train like an infant. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I can only imagine how this would impact you, but your devotion, I'm sure to finding out the truth. If he's willing to confess as he started to confess too, I was just so curious. You said you already touched on this, that he had two answers for why. Did he ever bring up, I mean, so is it simply, I mean, not to say simply, tragically, um, that he would target the women he did simply because they were marginalized? Was, did he ever, okay, so he did discuss the why with you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was 100% why. He said, "I, I, I never, I never killed, no governors, no senators, no fancy New York journalists like you. I didn't kill any college students. When I was working with uh, the Texas Ranger, Texas Ranger James Holland, who um, also, who who did elicit the official confessions, um, that he always said, just like college girl, he would just toss it, toss it, toss it, toss it. Like it would never, he would never do that. It was always like, you know, the women on the most extreme edges, you know, that no one would notice when they, if they fell off. 
It was at this point in my conversation with Jillian that I wanted to circle back to something she'd said about Samuel Little's family, that they told her he was, quote, wrong from the day he was born. She recalled that one of the first conversations she ever had with Samuel Little was about his teenage mother abandoning him as an infant by the side of a dirt road. Over the years, Jillian has become close to a few members of Samuel Little's family. She didn't want to reference them by name, and she said as far as she knows, she's the only person they've ever spoken to in depth about his crimes. It's an understatement to say they're mortified. They don't want to be misrepresented, of course, by what he did. And she describes his family as a cool, creative group of people. Referencing his family tree, Jillian said Samuel Little claims to have ties to Malcolm X, whose father was a man named Earl Little. So when Jillian asked how he felt about his cousin Malcolm X's convictions, Samuel Little said he thought it was stupid to die for what you believe in. She said he seemed to find true belief in anything as foolishness. Family members who called Samuel Little Sammy told Jillian he was knocked around by an uncle growing up, but that they don't know if they can trust everything he said about his childhood. From what they can remember, anytime Samuel was around, the police came around three days later. In their eyes, they said he was nothing but trouble. And after years of grappling with his disciplinary issues as a child and teen, it was Samuel Little's father who ultimately chased him away from the family home with a shotgun. Considering his past and his disregard, like Jillian said, not only for human life, but for anyone who went down for their beliefs, I had to ask, why confess? Four years after he began serving his three consecutive life sentences in California, and Jillian pointed this out earlier in our conversation, investigators realized a Texas cold case sounded a lot like a Samuel Little murder. According to the FBI, when Texas Ranger James Holland went to California to interview Sam in 2018, he shared information with James Holland because he was hoping for a prison transfer. He wanted to be extradited to Texas. And Jillian said this was very typical. Again, everything with Samuel Little was a transaction. During approximately 700 hours of interviews, Samuel Little provided details of scores of slayings that only the killer would have known. He was nearly 80 and failing health when he began opening up to James Holland. But Jillian said there was always an ulterior motive for Samuel Little. Like confession wasn't the, wasn't his intention. You know, it wasn't to be famous. It wasn't, the confession was a transaction with both me and the Texas Ranger who promised him something. It was a transaction. The confession was, okay, fine. Do I get a woman to come? I have had no one come visit me in four years. Do I get a famous journalist to come visit me? Make me famous in the yard. You know, buy me a hot pot and some ramen noodles and give her the story. Do I talk to this Texas Ranger and all these police and all of a sudden have a million zillion friends of detectives coming in? From Kentucky, bringing him barbecue. From, from Florida, bringing him oranges. 
from, you know, you know, buying him a TV when he was alone, alone, alone. I mean, the confessions were a were a transaction. And all of this, I'm doing the good thing for the world right now. I'm making the right choice. The way I talk to Sam was Sam, like I I understand that you're not. You're not making this choice for you. You're not making this choice because you care about these victims or their families or anything else or God. Like you can say that to everyone. I have, I mean, this is in the documentary confronting a serial killer. I have this conversation. I was like, but I don't, I don't believe you. I I think you're making that up. Um, I think, you know, you're supposed to say that. I don't think you feel bad. I was like, I think you feel bad for yourself when you feel bad that you got caught. You know, you're you're not confessing because you feel bad for the victims' families. Please. Like repentance. He believed he repented every time he killed someone and he was forgiven. All you have to do is ask and you're forgiven. And again, I couldn't help noticing how contradictory it seemed for someone who looked down on other people for their beliefs to reference things like repentance and forgiveness. But Jillian said she saw it as the mark of a true psychopath. He was constantly caught in his own web of lies. And when I asked her how she could converse with someone so duplicitous and discern what was truthful... She told me it was Texas Ranger James Holland who gave her crucial advice ahead of her meetings with Samuel Little. You know, it's like, that's why a lot of these sort of myths, these, I don't know, like, like profiling and I can tell when someone's lying and well, actually, no, you can't. What? your biggest strength and how I got my confessions. And I happen to know just because I discussed it at length with Texas Ranger, James Holland, that he had the same policy is that if you're going to go into a room with a psychopath of this degree, don't lie, lie as little as possible. Lie only if you absolutely have to. Because he's better than you. Like, if you start lying, he'll see it coming a mile away. You can't see it in him because he doesn't register. His neurologically does not register physically lying the way that maybe I would if I was lying to you. You know, like it's a it is a a giant mind F and And I dealt with it mostly by telling the truth because, I mean, after so many years, you can't remember your own lies. So don't go in there and try to lie to a liar. You just sort of take the opposite tactic. Jillian told me that was how she kept herself sane, laughingly admitting that a lot of her conversations with Samuel Little probably wouldn't be considered sane, but nonetheless, it was how... Again, in Jillian's words, she kept their communication clean and safe. Samuel Little, who had diabetes, heart trouble, and other ailments, died in December 2020. He was 80 years old. 
But my last question for Jillian wasn't necessarily about him. It was about his victims. I find at times in the true crime genre, especially when we're discussing serial killers, the victims and their loved ones get lost. So I wanted to end on a message of hope and underscore what's next for the dozens of cases connected to Samuel Little that have yet to be solved. That's so interesting. It gave me chills. I I mean, so to get these confessions and knowing, I guess in closing, I always like to to focus on the victims too. And going forward, there are still dozens and dozens of cases that could be connected to him that have yet to be solved. So what's next for those victims? Um, I was going to ask you, how can we, the public, help? Um, And I guess you've touched on this, but I feel like this is such an important conversation where marginalized victims are concerned in the field of true crime um, and how we approach their cases. Um, What is next for these victims? Well, I think there are a number of different possibilities. What I hope, and what I hope my book, Behold the Monster, can put a tiny dent in is just awareness and also welcoming people in to this investigation, to this to this problem in our criminal justice system, to various solutions that are possible. You know, it doesn't have to be this way. There are, you know, there are systems that work in Canada, you know, that are multi-jurisdictional and are mandated that work quite well. Um, And so that that there are solutions. And um, I would love the public to recognize that it's not Sam and it's not just the justice system. It, you know, and you can't always blame the cops because it was a jury of his peers. It was us. That's what I want to impress upon people is that it was a jury of his peers who acquitted him again and again. And who, and who looked at witnesses who were of color, who were perhaps addicted, who were marginalized women, who were prostitutes, not all of them, a good deal of them, as discredited already. And if I can do anything of my own little part to change that, then that would be incredible. And if I could just raise awareness around Sam's cases, maybe somebody's sister, mother, brother, son will see a picture I have. I have a comprehensive list of the solved and unsolved cases of Sam's in the book. Um, You can also find them on the FBI website. Um, But uh, you won't find the solves. I I also have those. So... um, You know, I just, I want to invite people into this conversation of worth and justice in our society. And I think this is an excellent story to do with. It certainly was my story with which I grappled with those issues. 
And Jillian's full story, as I mentioned before, is featured in her latest book, Behold the Monster, Confronting America's Most Prolific Serial Killer. It's available for pre-order now. You can go to JillianLauren.com. I ordered mine already on Amazon. It officially goes on sale this July, and I cannot wait to read it this summer. This is Beyond Criminal Headlines. My name is Nicole Bennett. Every few weeks, you'll be able to find new episodes on any of your favorite podcast providers featuring conversations between myself and experts who've investigated some of the most notorious crimes in our history. And you can follow the podcast on Facebook. It's at Beyond Criminal Headlines. Feel free to send me ideas for investigations that we can cover in upcoming episodes. And please don't forget, wherever you're listening right now, rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff so you don't miss an episode. I hope you learned something from this week's episode on Samuel Little featuring the incredible Jillian Lauren. We'll be back again soon. Until next time, this is your host for Beyond Criminal Headlines, Nicole Bennett, signing off. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.